Good afternoon and welcome to Queering the Air. My name is Jacob and I am your genderqueer premiere presenter taking you through to your three o'clock session of today's Trans Day of Audibility broadcast. And before I begin, I want to acknowledge that we're broadcasting today on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and to any Indigenous listeners listening in today. So we've got a very exciting hour coming up covering a range of social justice and current affairs issues that are related to trans and gender diverse people. Um, I'm very passionate about news and current affairs, so um, it brings me great joy to bring to light a lot of these issues that we're going to be speaking about today. So first up, we're going to be speaking to Franklin Hooper, who is a queer trans man from the NT. He works in community services, and he's very passionate about speaking on mental health. We're also going to be speaking to Dr. Sandy O'Sullivan, who is a Wiradjuri trans non-binary professor of Indigenous Studies at Macquarie Uni. They've done some really interesting research about the relationship of colonization and gender binaries. So we're going to be chatting to them about some of the discoveries that they've made and kind of the relationships between Australia's grim past of colonization and how that links back into cisgender norms. And then lastly, we're going to be speaking with a couple of people from 2010, which, if you didn't know, is a homelessness organization that does a lot of work with LGBTQIA plus uh, communities. So we're going to be speaking with Terence and Jade a little later on in the show. So I hope you're looking forward to today's program. I'm going to pop on a community service announcement and we'll be right back after this. Trans Family is a not-for-profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones, including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. Welcome back. You're on 3CR. It's Trans Day of Audibility here. And up next, we're going to be speaking with Franklin Hooper, who is a mental health advocate and a community worker. Just a warning to our listeners, this next section contains some mentions of suicide, depression and self-harm. So if this is something that's going to cause you some pain or trigger you, um, please tune back in in about 10 minutes at quarter past three. So mental health has always been a major issue in the trans community who are frequently overrepresented in statistics. Last year, LGBTQI plus Health Australia reported that 35% of transgender people aged 18 plus had attempted suicide at least once in their lifetimes. Now that's a staggering statistic and it also reflects another statistic, which is that 57.2% had been diagnosed with depression at some point in their lives. Now, this paints a very grim picture for our community. Behind each statistic statistic is a story of pain and suffering. But there is hope. Our community remains resilient, and societal attitudes are shifting, and more support is available. So here, joining me now live in the studio to unpack this issue is Franklin Hooper. Frank, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me here. It's good to be here in person. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. I think you're my very first guest I've had in the studio since COVID. Now, I know your story's a little bit different from the conventional trans story. So tell us about yourself um, and your own experiences with mental health. Yeah, well, um, like I said, I grew up in the Northern Territory. And so I... I guess didn't grow up as most other Australians might have, or I guess 
most urban Australians might have. There wasn't as much in the way of um, services available. People may not have been as um, educated about issues that were going on globally. Um, it was very local sense. Um, and I actually didn't have access to the internet until I was about 13. It just wasn't a thing my family did. So learning about things outside of my sphere of um, my community's sphere of education was quite difficult. And I think I first identified with myself that I was experiencing mental illness when I was about 12. That was well before I realised I was trans or really any part of the LGBT community. But I just identified within myself that I felt different and that I didn't like my body or the way that I looked. And it wasn't just simply a vanity issue. It was that I didn't feel like the body I was in belonged to me. And so I think that was when I first remember, I guess, acknowledging that that was an issue. But it wasn't until I turned about maybe 20 that I first accessed mental health support. And that was after moving into um, moving to a city and being basically forced to access that support. So it was quite a long process of going through like most of my teenage years, which I don't remember, that was heaped in a lot of um, a lot of depression while I tried to discover who I was and what gender was and what sexuality was and how those words impacted me and my life and my experience and also the experiences of people around me. Um, and during that time, I um, started a an organisation to try and use the knowledge that I had gained through my journey of self-discovery to educate other people in my town about that <laughs> that information as well and try to make sure that kids growing up in that town now don't have to go through the same fear that I was going through that they don't understand their bodies or, or their minds or what was going on with them. I think it's absolutely fantastic that you've been able to turn around what's such a confronting experience for, for most of us um, as trans and gender diverse people into a cause that helps younger people. Um, so I really applaud you for that. And I think it's easy to see how mental health is such a big issue when people exist in these bodies and they're told, you are wrong, you are wrong. Why do you think trans and gender diverse people are so overrepresented in mental health statistics? Well, like you said, the um, mental health statistics for trans people are quite confronting when you when you look at them online and, and you see, I guess, people like the World Health Organization showing research that is really, really clearly... Um, very, very stark and, and quite difficult to, to look at and notice that you are part of that statistic. Um, part of the studies that the World Health Organization have done is looking into maybe why um, trans and gender diverse people experience um, a high rate of mental illness and some of the things that they note as being potential um, sort of contribu- contributors to this high mental health rate are things like um, sexism, discrimination, violence and barriers to health care. And so obviously I faced one of those in my life, barriers to healthcare. I think the other three can be um, obviously a lot more obvious and um, confronting. I mean, sexism happens pretty much every day to most trans and gender diverse people. Discrimination as well is, is a very, very talked about topic. Um, and then violence, of course, is very, very traumatic and happens to unfortunately a high number of trans and gender diverse people, especially trans women and um, feminine presenting non-binary people. So that's, um, I guess, some of the four major things that that, that the World Health Organization notes. I think one thing that is deeply impacting as well is, again, what I spoke about, that feeling of not understanding what's going on with your body or your mind. And I think that part of that comes down to education and making sure that the community that you're around is there to support you in growing up and figuring out who you are and is not going to place those barriers there in terms of learning about things like gender and sexuality. I mean, I didn't even know what the word gay meant until I was about maybe 14. Mm. So you have to, there has to be people in your life who teach you about those things so you can understand and have the words to express who you are because otherwise it's going to deeply impact you and you're going to feel like such, so much more of an outsider than you already do feel. Absolutely. And you touched on before the struggle of just trying to access a health service. Do you think even when you do get to access a service, are they effective in, in providing trans-friendly healthcare? I think the issue is that a lot of services that do provide specifically trans-friendly healthcare have such long waiting lists. Even in Melbourne, um, when I first arrived here, the waiting lists to access a transgender-specific doctor or a doctor that specifically treats trans- transgender-diverse people 
it was like eight months mm. and they weren't taking people on the waiting list anymore because it was too full. That's a long time to wait when you are already ex- like already going through the process of maybe taking hormones or looking into that or you need to access healthcare support or mental health support on an emergency basis, trying to find support that's um, appropriate to your situation and that also is accessible and affordable is incredibly difficult, almost impossible. And you kind of have to go with the next best option, which is a doctor who may not know about your situation but may be em- empathetic to your situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that really needs to change. Um, there needs to be more, I guess, opportunity for doctors to learn about trans-specific healthcare. Absolutely. It seems to be quite a common story for trans people of I've you know accessed healthcare and they just don't understand me or my needs. Um, mm. And even getting to access healthcare, as we talked about before, is so hard when the wait list is eight months. So, yeah, at a minimum. Yeah. So, so what more do you think needs to be done, not only from a government level, but also from a community level to support the trans community? Yeah, well, I think from a government level, obviously, that's a bit more high level. There's um, obviously funding is a major thing, a major issue we always need more funding to be put into these areas, more research and more funding to be put into that research to understand trans health. I mean, there's so many different complications that can come from um, being a trans person that you wouldn't experience normally as a, as, as a gender binary person um, or a cis person. And so I think that that's one major factor from a government standpoint. From a community standpoint, obviously um, education is a major thing and just showing that support can help massively. It's It's the small things that really make a difference. Even just having someone in your life who you can relate to and who you feel like is like you is is massively important. Um, I remember in high school I had a non-binary physics teacher Mm. and they were coming out around the same time that I was questioning. And seeing them come out and be accepted by the community made a massive difference to me feeling safe to then come out as well myself because they took the step as an adult in my life to support me, but also show that there were people in my school and my community who would also be supportive. And that was a major comfort to me. And so I think those small little acts to show that you can be accepted and that you'll be welcomed within your community make a massive difference to the mental health and well-being of a young person, especially a young person who is gender diverse. Absolutely. Visibility is, is so important and just making sure there's community there for them, mm-hmm. I think, is just... Yeah, the importance can't be understated. And Frank, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story today. It's been a real pleasure um, hearing you and all of your insights on this topic. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It was good to see you again. (laughs) Thank you. So if any of that content um, of this interview was distressing, please reach out and find support by phoning QLife on 1-800-184-527. Um, you can also phone Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. And all of these services have web chat functions available as well if you're someone who doesn't like to talk over the phone. Well, Frank, thanks again, and we'll be right back. I'm going to jump us to a little song now. This one's called Boy with the Windfields and the Wild Heart, and it's by a trans musician called Flower Kid. So I hope you enjoy. Did you know when you woke up the morning? Place of people whisper about no hopes That you told your mom you loved her And if that's so, did you choke on those words you said I wish you'd close your eyes And waited things out, you would have been alright Cause the beauty you couldn't see was on the other side But I could never blame you for the weight on your shoulders that we couldn't find But I guess I don't really know you that well Cause you left before I could say hello And if we met, maybe you'd have watched me grow But instead all I know you 
Welcome back to Queering the Air this Sunday on our Trans Day of Audibility. My name's Jacob. The time is about 3.19. And we just had a fantastic interview with Franklin Hooper about mental health and some of the barriers that trans and gender diverse people face in getting access to services and support. And up next, I'm very excited to bring on a guest who's done decades of research on this topic. So strap yourselves in, everyone. As our understanding of trans and gender diverse identities grows, we've adopted new forms of expression, language, and terminology. But we often forget that conventional gender roles and concepts of masculinity and femininity are derived from our colonial past. And there's a growing body of evidence to suggest that pre-colonization, First Nations people had a much different understanding of gender roles and identities, an understanding that has also evolved during contemporary times. Joining us now to shed some light on the topic is Dr. Sandy O'Sullivan, a Wiradjuri trans non-binary academic with about three decades of experience researching this topic. Sandy, welcome to the program. Sandy, welcome to the program. Hi, I'm just checking. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, I can hear you now. How are you going today? Uh, Good, thanks. Good, thanks. It's been really interesting to hear um, everything so far. Yeah, I'm glad you're enjoying the program. Now, let's talk a bit about some of the things you've been researching. There seems to be a notion that queerness and transness emerged as a product of Western progressivism, but growing attention has been given to queerness in First Nations communities. So what do we know about queer and trans identities within Aboriginal culture? Well, it's this, it's this other paternalism to suggest that we weren't really complex people. You know, 
when do they think that queerness or transness started? <laughs> um, and erasure is really tricky. It's hard to know the past when it's been so violently taken from us. So one important way is to look at our now and our future and not just see us as kind of relics of the past. So we do this all the time as Aboriginal people. We don't know our past because of some archaeological dig of people from 10,000 years ago. We know because we pass it on. Um, but we've also got a lot to reclaim. So it's not an easy answer to that, except to mm. say that, you know, this notion of queerness and transness belonging to, um, to kind of Western progressivism is incredibly silly because it really does suggest that we're effectively animals and, you know, Western culture is this sophisticated site in which there was always this complexity of, you know, gender and sexuality that grew up from something else, you know, whereas we didn't have any of that. And look, this extends to other things too, but it's, it's really obvious in this site, you know, and it's, and it's used all the time as this um, argument that somehow um, Aboriginal people were far simpler you know, um, and, you know, it's just racism. <laughs> so, and mm. also, of course, part of it is that it doesn't really fully understand that, you know, Western progressivism forgot about transness and queerness in its own history. Um, it erased a whole lot of that in the 18th and 19th century in really, really problematic ways. So it did a, lot, a big job of reclamation where we didn't. Mm. You know, we had it all along. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more with your points about it's really hard to know because so much of Aboriginal history has been erased. But I think, as you said, it, it lives on today in contemporary times. And I think you talk a bit about that in your article, The Colonial Project of Gender and Everything Else, in which you speak about how nuclear family structures and the inherent gender roles there, such as you know a, a woman as the caretaker and a man as a breadwinner, are privileged above Indigenous kinship structures. So I'm curious to know what does a traditional kinship structure look like and how has colonialism impacted this over time? I know this might sound a bit like the same answer as the last question, but kinship that extends beyond the, the nuclear family is actually a truth in most cultures, mm. uh, including Western cultures. Again, there was an erasure of it in the 18th and 19th century. You know, in the industrial site of reshaping families change that but you know inherent gender roles are you know a part of a problem that needs to be solved for us as indigenous people we've got roles in our families and i always think about the way that stephen oliver um talks about our relationality as about how we're connected not you know a second cousin once removed so not how we're distant so that notion of connection is complex, you know, because of course it is. It doesn't make sense for us to be um, distanced from one another. And so kinship is about providing what's needed for a strengthening family. It's about what's needed for a strengthening culture and community. And the notion of this kind of separation is incredibly problematic. And as, as a broader culture, we're often trying to to challenge that. And so, you know, the role is, um, the roles that we have are complex, but they're, again, all about relationality. So, yeah. Absolutely. I think it's so easy to simplify both of our histories um, from a Western perspective and an Indigenous perspective. And we forget that, yeah, as you said, it's, it's much more complex um, than we could have imagined. And I'd love to chat a bit more about the intersection of trans identity and First Nations identity. What do you think are some of the challenges faced by trans and gender diverse Indigenous folks, both in mainstream society, but also in queer settings too? Oh, look, the, the biggest challenge is, you know, support from others, including for gender-affirming care and things like our Aboriginal health services. Um, understanding that there's a connection between that. Indigenous folks, both in mainstream society and in queer settings um, have some very specific needs. But oftentimes what happens is, and this isn't going to surprise anyone to hear this, there's these kind of silos where it becomes about queer people have these needs, Indigenous people have these needs, mm. queer Indigenous people actually have either both sets of needs or something that is 
somewhere else. And, you know, so I, I think fundamentally, um, you know, we need to be able to live and die as the gender that we are. You know, we need to be able to be supported in that. And uh, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on that. And sometimes it gets pushed to the side by everyone else because there are some, you know, what are seen as more fundamental or just more widespread concerns. And, you know, so they're some of the things that I guess I and other people who are concerned about this and who live lives that are concerned about this are drawing attention to because we've got to think about it. We've got to recognise that there's no downside to the complexity of people, but the downside is not being able to provide resources to support people um, or even understandings or even having those conversations. Yeah. Mm. I think um, we need to immortalise that quote. We need to live and die as the gender we are. I, I love that quote. Um, yeah. And I know right now that you're working on a project entitled Saving Lives, Mapping the Influence of Indigenous LGBTIQ plus Creative Artists. So I really want to hear some more about this. And, and why do you think it's important to document the work of Indigenous, queer and trans creatives? Uh, because they're brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Because one of the things that happens with creative practice is that um, creative practitioners spend a whole bunch of time um, thinking about um, the world, you know, and thinking about our world. And so, you know, I think about people like uh, Uncle Noel Tovey, who wrote um, uh, Little Black Bastard. And Uncle Noel was often historically framed as either black or queer by different people writing about Uncle Noel. But uh, not both. But, of course, in the retelling of his own life in that way, he speaks to all the complexities of that and, and what it means to just fight and fight. Imagine us not having that. You know, imagine if nobody had done that or we couldn't look back to, to, to that or even look to now. Um, you know, and I think of, of people like Willa Mawada, you know, who continues to be a staunch queer activist who absolutely in every way challenges reductive ideas of gender because, of course, they do. And so they're providing models for ways to be in the world. And it's not just a pithy kind of line about, you know, you can't be what you can't see. Of course it's that. Of course challenging the symbolic annihilation of people is incredibly important. Um, making sure that we're present and visible and that we're talking about any of the challenges. But being able to do it in that way that is around both celebration and kind of the interrogation that happens with creative practice, like looking at things and thinking deeply about it is actually a wonderful part of that. And so I hate, uh, you know, I, I, I'm fearful, and maybe it's my age, you know, I'm about to turn 56, and I'm really worried that um, that what happens is when, when we go, um, people don't remember this incredible body of work, you know, um, not my incredible body of work, but other people, you know, and it worries me. It really, it really concerns me because, again, people wanting to put us into categories, we'll find a way to erase those other parts of who we are. And, and we've got to do something about that because young people or people who are uh, coming out for the first time need to know that they don't, they're not going to lead reductive lives. They're not going to lead wrong lives. They're going to lead better lives. <laughs> and uh, I want to make that both true and also show how, how, how that's the truth. That all sounds a bit Pollyanna-esque, like it sounds a bit like like uh, it's all going to be great stories or positive stories, and it's not. But it's also, you know, very much about um, uh, about understanding um, with this project, and it's got, kind of got a lot of different elements to it, um, but understanding with this project that we, that we want to recognise just um, the wonders of, um, of of queer Indigenous people and um, and that they deserve that, that we deserve that. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more with you, Sandy. And thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your insights on this topic. Um, it's been a real pleasure uh, chatting with you. Thank you. You're really welcome. Thanks again for doing today. Thank you. That was Dr. Sandy O'Sullivan there. They are a Wiradjuri queer, um, trans, non-binary professor who is working on a project at the moment called Saving Lives, Mapping the Influence of Indigenous LGBTIQ plus Creative Artists. You're on 3CR. This is a Trans Day of Audibility. We're having a blast here at the studio, I think. Um, I'm going to put on a song. So this one's called Two Hearts by... Cry Club. Too hard. 
lights so far apart sitting in the same car avoiding awkward conversation too close to what could have been we're breathing each other in i can taste this mistake we're making and all my friends think i'm crazy but i'm just crazy Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card 
and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Welcome back to 3CR Queering the Air. You're joined by Jacob on our Trans Day of Audibility, in which we're broadcasting seven hours of trans and gender diverse content. And we've taken a bit of a social justice current affairs lens this past hour. I've had some really important discussions about mental health with a mental health community worker and advocate, Franklin Hooper. And we also chatted with Dr. Sandy O'Sullivan and heard their reflections on the relationship of gender roles um, and family structures to colonialism. And up next, I'm going to be talking to two individuals from 2010, which, if you didn't know, is a homelessness organization that works to help out people uh, who are LGBTQIA and experiencing homelessness. So... Let's talk a bit about why this is a big issue for trans people. It remains an ongoing challenge uh, for the trans community, with TransHub reporting that one in five trans people have experienced homelessness at some point in their lives. And the issue is complex. So homelessness doesn't just mean sleeping rough. It also encapsulates people living in temporary or crisis accommodation and people living in unsafe dwelling dwellings, sorry. And it begs the question, how can we create a safer society to protect our communities? So I'm joined now by Terence Humphreys and Jade Hunter from 2010. Terence and Jade, welcome to the program. Hi, Thank you, Jacob. It's a pleasure. Now, Terence, why is homelessness such a prominent issue for trans people and LGBTQIA plus people in Australia? Well, um, as a cis person, Jacob, I can't answer from personal experience or speak for the trans and gender diverse communities, but I can certainly answer from what we know at 2010 about the young people that we deal with. And we know that this isn't a simple issue. It's quite multifaceted and there needs to be a lot more research to help us have a, a much deeper understanding. But as you mentioned with research, um, a piece of research from a couple of years ago called Writing Themselves in Four about young people who are LGBTIQA+, and their health and well-being, um, had even higher statistics for trans people who are young people. So 45% of trans men and 37.9% of trans women who uh, participated in that study experienced homelessness in their lifetime. And we know that Part of that can be mental health issues, rejection from family, family violence um, and financial stress. But at the core of it, a lot of the issues boil down to some general ignorance and fear in the general public. Partly that's caused through things like um, being trans, being a current political football, some current media attacks, particularly on trans children. And all of that means that parents and caregivers can often be ill-equipped um, to support their child or young person. Um, and coming out can be really terrifying for those young people as well. And that fear of rejected rejection or a delayed acceptance uh, has a really major impact on them. Uh, and all of that is then exacerbated by the fact that we have very limited culturally responsive services and practitioners in this country, uh, particularly, uh, I, I guess I'm speaking from New South Wales, uh, limited funding for specialist services, which means that often the services that do have that knowledge tend to be city-centric, city um, and also really poor data collection, whether that's from the census or homelessness data or academic research. Mm, so many complex factors that, that go into this <laughs> issue, and you yeah. touched upon before how there's not really a lot of specialist services that provide support um, for the community. So I'm curious to hear your answer to this. How does the housing sector's response measure up? And what are some of the stories we've heard about how trans people have been treated by housing providers? Yeah, look, it's really inconsistent state by state. So housing is funded at a state level. And in 
New South Wales, um, we've been fortunate enough to have funding for LGBTIQA plus young people and for transgender adults for a number of years, not just for 2010, but other services. Um, but it's still, it, it's still always the demand is outweighs the funding. And uh, I guess we've been maybe luckier than some other states and territories, but still that demand is, is never met by that funding. And in New South Wales, homelessness is uh, a, what's called a Premier's Priority, um, and LGBTIQ young people are a priority, and certainly within that, trans and gender diverse uh, children and young people are also um, a priority as well. But uh, for years, 2010 has advocated for more inclusive data collection in the homelessness sector, and we had a bit of success a couple of years ago um, and were also funded to deliver some inclusivity training um, that we run called PRISM across New South Wales' homelessness sector to support that new, more inclusive data collection and culturally appropriate service deliveries. Um, but that, that really needs to be every worker in every industry and sector right across the country, like starting from from undergraduate level so that people are coming into the workplace equipped to be able to work uh, respectfully and inclusively with trans and gender diverse young people. Mm. And we've had, you know, lots of stories over the years from young people about their experiences in mainstream homelessness services and certainly we've seen marked improvements in, in the last five to ten years but there's still a long way to go and Often those stories are about discrimination, being misgendered, placed in accommodation um, that's based on an assumed gender rather than the person's affirmed gender. Uh, and lots of services don't have uh, options for people uh, to go into, particularly like they won't have non-binary sleeping, toilet or bathroom options. And so people are forced to, to stay or to use services that don't actually uh, match their gender at all. Uh, so there's lots that needs to continue happening um, to improve that, and trans and gender diverse people and community-led organisations should really be at the forefront of that. Mm, there's a, a lot of great work happening, but as you said, there's still quite a way to go. And Jade, what difference does providing a safe and supportive space to trans and gender diverse people make? Um. I would say it's the difference between thriving and surviving. Um, often I see young people come into our service and they're shy, quiet, unsure of themselves and the environment. And then I watch them walk away, um, vibrant, talkative. Um, others, I've seen other clients come in and um, they get changed into clothes that match their gender expression. And the difference between the person that walks in and the person that walks out of the, the bathroom is like night and day. That the freedom to express themselves, it, it gives them power. It, it helps build them up. And so creating that network of um, peers and support environment plays an essential role in their health and well-being, both physically and mentally. Mm, it's, it's such a powerful story you told there of, people going in um, as a totally different person to the, the person that they are coming out just because they've had access to something supportive and affirming. And Terence, we know that discrimination and social isolation are major factors that drive homelessness. What needs to be done by the community to create a safer society, particularly for groups that are facing other forms of marginalisation as well, such as trans people who may live regionally uh, or First Nations trans people? Yeah, I think at the core of it, our, our current dominant culture in this country pathologises, discriminates and harms trans and gender diverse children, young people and adults. Um, and we need to change that culture to one that supports and celebrates them. Um, we need to ensure that we have those community-led specialist organisations who are properly funded and that if, if people access support through mainstream services, that those services and the workers there are culturally safe, they're welcoming and effective. Um, 
part of that would mean addressing that kind of city-centric nature of our services and the way that there's not enough funding sometimes and the way that services are almost pitched against each other for, for you know, the small amount of funding that is there. Um, but I think also being... Um, about the way that we deliver those services. And I suppose that's the silver lining of, of the COVID-19 situation and lockdown was that many services got much better at, you know, providing support services through new and different methods like being online or telehealth. Mm. We want to ensure that, you know, all those services, particularly those mainstream services, are culturally safe and appropriate because often they're easier for people to access geographically. But realistically, at the heart of it, we need every single worker in every sector, but particularly homelessness, education, mental health, the youth sector. All of those sectors need workers that have been trained and that they have the ability to provide, or, or that they have, rather, a nuanced and, and uh, contemporary understanding of uh, trans and gender diverse children, young people and adults, so that they're better able to provide the appropriate care to them, uh, but also to the parents and caregivers as well. Um, and that would, that would extend, I suppose, to the workplace and making sure that workplaces are equipped um, to be able to have affirmative, uh, trans-affirmative recruitment strategies so that more trans and gender diverse people are employed across all those sectors wherever possible. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess we need to close those gaps, you know, that I mentioned at the start uh, in our understanding of trans and gender homeless, uh, transgender and gender diverse homelessness um, to get a more um, detailed understanding for, you know, for all those intersecting identities and aspects of ourselves like those with a disability uh, those with cognitive physical disabilities or um, asylum seekers, religious minority groups, people from regional remote areas, um, trans and gender diverse people that have been incarcerated or are exiting prison, the elderly, uh, people who were sex workers, neurodiverse, living with HIV, or, or targets of violence. Like, we just don't have enough information and data to to really have the whole picture when it comes to providing appropriate care for those people. Mm. Um, it it yeah. definitely requires such a, a holistic response, as you were saying, yeah. not only from a, a community level, but training every service that interacts with, with trans and gender diverse people. And Jade, how important do you think it is um, to trans and gender diverse young people that we have positive representation such as Trans Day of Visibility, which is coming up this Thursday on the 31st? Um, I'd say it's incredibly important. A uh, key reason would be to, to fight back that narrative that has been and still is driven in the media. It's one that we see that is filled with misinformation, hate, bigotry, uh, and even the times when it's not. We, even the times where it's meant to be positive and, and helpful, it, the narrative is, is centered on our experience as an experience of pain and suffering rather than the joy that comes from uh, being yourself and, sorry, that's my dog, um, and learning to love yourself. Mm. I think uh, young people are already aware of the challenges that. Um, that, are, that can be faced when being trans and gender diverse. But what I really want them to see and hear and feel is the, the love, pride and community that comes with it as well. It's definitely powerful to see trans joy um, elevated, isn't it? It really is. It's, it's, a, it's a shift in focus that I want to advocate for, I want to present and I want to see... I, I don't like, of course, there are challenges that we, we face and there are issues which are documented that need to be tackled. But I want, I want our youth to like kind of be ignorant, but not ignorant of it. I want them to grasp in privilege. I want them to not know how, how good they, they, they have to break down these barriers. And I want them to see the, the, the positive 
side of things and because that, that is also a big part of it. It's, it's you know, coming out as trans or gender diverse meaning means that you you know yourself a little more than you did before and that's worth celebrating. Mm, I couldn't agree more and Terence, we will have to wrap up in a couple of minutes, so I'll just ask this last question quickly. With a federal election coming up this year, if you had one hope for government reforms to help address this issue, what would they be? Wow, that's a tall order. And I can't speak for for trans people, but my hope personally would be to see um, legislation, consistent legislation that places the voices of trans and gender diverse people at the forefront for funding for community-led and specialist organisations, particularly in health and homelessness, some improvement um, on on human rights for trans and gender diverse people, particularly for young people and children in educational settings, and an end to the public so-called debates about the human rights for trans and gender diverse communities. and, you know, everyone should have access to affordable and sustainable housing. Absolutely. Please, let's bin this religious discrimination bill. I'm sick of the debates. I want it done. <laughs> we all are. Yeah. Well, Jade and Terence, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you this afternoon. Thank you so much, both Thank of you, for coming on and sharing your thoughts on this. Thanks so much, Jacob. Thank mm, you. Thank you. You're on 3CR Trans Day of Audibility on Queering the Air, joined by myself, Jacob. The time is about 3.52, and we're going to jump to a song now. This one's called 2000 and Whatever by Electric Fields. Yes, my blood with the eyes of a panther. With your cosmic skin and a solo to you dancer. Ooh, you should know this by now, your energy is loud. Welcome back to Queering the Air on 3CR, 855 AM on the dial, 
or maybe you're tuning in live on the air, 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming, which in which case, good for you, technology expert. We've had some really important discussions this afternoon, and it's it's honestly been a very, very real pleasure to host. Um, so today we had a chat with Franklin Hooper, who is a mental health community worker advocate about trans people and mental health. And he shared some of his own stories about trouble accessing the services and uh, not having correct care with the services when you actually get beyond the wait list of eight months. We also spoke with Dr. Sandy O'Sullivan, who is a Wiradjuri trans non-binary professor, um, and they had some really, really interesting insights about the relationships between colonization um, and gender roles. And we talked a bit about how it's so complex um, and it's so hard to kind of pinpoint one thing or another. And then lastly, we had a really special conversation with Terence Humphrey and Jade Hunter from 2010, which is an LGBTQIA plus homelessness organization. They're based on Gadigal land in Sydney. And we talked a bit about why homelessness is such a prominent issue for trans people in Australia and the importance of creating safe spaces for trans homeless people. And I thought it would be nice to end the show with some personal reflections from myself. So I recently made the discovery, probably last year, that I am in fact genderqueer, um, that I don't wish to identify either as male or female. And I think while it was such a challenging process, coming to terms with that, it's both a blessing and a curse to have to put up a mirror to every element of your identity and ask, who am I? Who am I? What Am I a man or a woman? And I think I've found a lot of peace um, in surrounding myself with similarly gender diverse and trans people and just knowing that there is a community there. So the discovery is really only half the journey, coming to terms with accepting yourself, seeking acceptance from the world and finding your community is kind of the rest of the journey. And I, I think I can confidently say now I'm at a really positive place with my identity And I think something that really stood out to me throughout today's program was when Jade spoke about the importance of trans joy and seeing people happy with themselves. I don't think it can be understated because seriously, to think I would have been happy as a genderqueer person a year ago, I don't think, um, yeah, it's something I, I really envisioned for myself. So yeah, I just, I'm so happy to be doing trans day of audibility and i'm so happy that you all tuned in and shared the last hour with me i'm gonna finish up now uh, with a bit of a track and then we're gonna jump into another segment about parenting beyond gender so thank you so much everyone for tuning in today i hope you enjoy the rest of your day and to all our trans and gender diverse people who are listening in just know you are so loved and you are so beautiful and you are so worthy. And please don't listen to any of the garbage being put out at the moment with the trans discrimination debate. We, you, we love you here from 3CR. Um, and please stay safe. Enjoy the rest of your day. And that's all from me. Bye for now. This song is called Speak in Tongues by a non-binary artist called Max Lawrence. Can we speak in tongues? We don't have to say a single word. Hey, tell me never end story by the night. Dances in your eyes. Lit by the light of holy fire. You seem to say it all with your devil smile. Got into my head Like a little puppy I'll be blindly led Take me with you when you go Take possession of my soul I'm an animal to control And baby I know Language is limited by 
words to say to you But all that's in my head is the way you move Trying to find the words to say to you Don't need them, don't need them We conversate in the groove Trying to find the words to say to you Caught in my mouth when I look at you Trying to find the words to say to you Say to you You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.